Hey guys, welcome back to the swamp. Today, this one is gonna be a deep dive, and I mean a deep dive, so settle in for a long one here. This time, we're going to be looking into what very well may be the epicenter of missing 411 cases. This single park takes up nearly a quarter of the National Park Service's search and rescue budget. This is none other than the magnificent Yosemite National Park. Records of missing people in this area go all the way back to 1909, and I can only imagine the number who disappeared before then. Of course, we may never know the true extent of the lives lost in the Yosemite National Park area. But perhaps one day we may discover just how they were taken. That's why in this video I'm not just going to touch on just the missing, but also the murdered, the mysterious, and everything in between. Basically, we're going to be taking a fine tooth comb and looking for every little detail of this park, whether it be somebody who's gone missing, somebody who was killed, some sort of urban legend, everything surrounding Yosemite is going to be in this one video. So from dangerous terrain to dangerous people, let us take a look at some of the darkest stories and creepiest areas and all that good stuff of Yosemite National Park. Yosemite National Park, as like many other things in life, does come with a bit of a dark past. Even the park's name itself has a rather ominous meaning. The name Yosemite was given to the park by settlers who thought that was the name of the natives they were driving out of the area. It was later learned that natives actually called themselves Awanichis, and the term Yosemite actually meant they are killers. The Sierra Nevada mountain range is a chain of mountainous forest including Lake Tahoe, Mount Whitney, and the Yosemite Valley. These were home to the Awanichi people, or the Yosemite Mono Lake Paiute people. I know, that's a mouthful. For thousands of years, they lived in prosperity in this area, prior to the deadly war resulting from the settlers invading the area. The tribe considered the area sacred, and many still do. Interestingly, though not surprisingly, the Park Service is still not entirely forthcoming about, um, you know, the eviction of Yosemite's native population. Even to this day, the history and the circumstances around that are still fairly shady. It is known, though, that in the early 1900s, the National Park Service made it incredibly hard on the Awanachi people in the Yosemite National Park area. They made it notoriously hard specifically to get housing, yet Yosemite's website disregards the low population with low employment statistics. And they usually conveniently forget the park's long-standing priority of trying to remove the native peoples from the park. The army was slated to clear the entire Yosemite Valley area when the notorious 1851 California Gold Rush arose. Now imagine, they're going to come in, evict you from your home that you've lived for who knows how long for some damn gold. This, of course, created great conflict. Chief Tanaya put up a fierce resistance, and the fighting progressed into what is now known as the Mariposa wars. Eventually, the natives did relent, and they were unfortunately moved to a reservation in the Fresno, California area. With the natives successfully removed from their lands, a new era of Yosemite was set to begin. An era of settlers. 
Today, Yosemite seems to be a magnet for the strange, obscure, and even deadly events. But surprisingly, many of the park's legends have actually originated before it even became a national park. Before 1890, when the park was initially christened, the natives that lived on this land shared many stories, unsolved mysteries, and folklores that would terrify you to the bone. Legends like the Curse of Tanaya Canyon have been around since at least 1851 that I can find, and the story of the evil spirit of Panoho existed even before before that, from the ghost that roamed the Awanachi Hotel to the ghost of Grouse Lake, this park is apparently home to no shortage of ghost, ghost stories, and paranormal events. So is it all legend and myth, or is there some sort of truth in all of this? Well, I would like to say that the short and long answer of all this is... Yes. While there are plenty of unknowns and many questions with plenty of cases, there are in fact some confirmed truths. Venturing into the past is a must when it comes to looking into the story of Yosemite. Starting with the alleged curse of the Tanaya Canyon, one of the most dangerous and unofficial hiking areas not in just Yosemite, but the entire Sierra Nevada mountain range. Although Chief Tanaya and his people agreed to move from the area, they did eventually turn back and flee back to their homeland of Yosemite. Back in 1851, the Mariposa Brigade, who was tasked with moving these people to their new location, re-entered Yosemite. As punishment, these soldiers killed the chief's youngest son as they attempted to overtake the area. As a result of the tragic loss, Chief Tanaya cursed the same canyon that bears his name. Awanichi are said to have cursed the surrounding land as well that they were once evicted from. The canyon and the valley are believed to take revenge on those who dare explore it. In 1853, during an attempt to return to the Yosemite area once more, Chief Tanaya, by some sort of stroke of bad luck, was struck in the head by a falling rock. He died in the very canyon that he had just cursed merely two years before. Many freak accidents have occurred since Chief Tanaya's untimely death. So to some it would appear that Chief Tanaya's curse has never been lifted. In 1996, the area was plagued with rockfall, which unfortunately killed quite a few people. With others narrowly surviving, rock climber Peter Turbush was killed by a rockfall on Glacier Point in 1999. And as recently as 2021, there have been over 100 smaller scale rockfalls in that exact area. Some of these giant rockfalls even took out a previously beloved camp area. And normally, it would have been occupied by campers, but luckily, in that instance, it wasn't. Since record keeping in the area began in 1857, there have been 16 fatalities and more than 100 injuries from these rockfalls. Tanaya Canyon, regardless if it's haunted or not, is definitely dangerous. The official MPS map that is given out to hikers and visitors of the park has a warning in the center stating, hiking in Tanaya Canyon is dangerous and not recommended. Those who have seen and hiked the canyon say it is dramatic and incredibly endurance demanding. After being the scene of numerous search and rescues, and many of them not being successful, park rangers dubbed it Yosemite's Bermuda Triangle. However, these warnings do virtually nothing to deter outdoor enthusiasts. If anything, seems like the challenge is what brings most of these people there. And genuinely, it seems like they love it. Well, the ones that leave unscathed, that is. Sure, there are plenty of survivors, and many people go there each year with no issues. But I'm sure none of them would claim any of the treks they took any less risky. 
because those who survive the canyon rarely do so without some sort of scar to bring home with them, whether it be physical or mental. And of course, not everyone makes it out alive. With that being the case, I can already hear some of you asking me in the comments, then why the hell do people come from all around the world to visit this place if it's so dangerous? Is it human nature? Or is something truly drawing them in, luring them to their own demise? Or maybe it's just such a beautiful place that all of us can't help but come see it at least once in our life. It was summer of 1995 when Kelly Gleason, a nurse at Yosemite Medical Clinic, died from severe injuries sustained from a fall. While returning from a day hike in Hidden Falls, a small cascade on Tanaya Creek, Gleason slipped on angled, wet granite and fell 50 feet. She was unconscious when her hiking companions reached her, and unfortunately, she was pronounced dead on the scene. In 1996, two mysterious deaths occurred in Tanaya Canyon. The first was 23-year-old Alejandro Hernandez, who at the time had been backpacking with his older brother. It was reported by park rangers that the two had started at the Tanaya Lake Trailhead, eventually hiking off the trail into Tanaya Canyon, where Alejandro fell 130 feet and unfortunately died instantly. The other victim was 24-year-old Sam Meyer. He was actually a park employee himself from Buffalo, Wyoming. He was living in Yosemite at the time when he died at the base of Hidden Falls, aka Tanaya Creek Falls. Sam was rappelling near the waterfall itself, rappelling only just 125 feet before becoming stuck. Apparently, he had become stuck in a hole created by the surrounding boulders. It was also reported that he didn't have the appropriate gear to get out of a situation like this and climb out of the hole. Though there were loops in the rope that indicated that the ranger did try to create foothold in an attempt to help him escape, Meyer would later fall into the water below and die. August 5th, 2005, a single search team was traversing Tanaya Canyon in search of a missing 25-year-old foreign exchange student from South Korea named, and I'm very sorry if I fudged this one up, Hi Undo On. God, I hope I did that right. Previous searches had taken place throughout the summer, but none of them had reached the depths of the Tanaya until this first week of August. An's backpack had been found August 5th, 2005, on the bank of the Tanaya Creek, and the following day, An's body was found about a mile further up Tanaya Creek, also on the bank. Later, an autopsy revealed some revealing information. She had died from multiple blunt force trauma to her head. It was determined that An had fallen into the creek, which was swollen from the spring runoff. This would leave his body and belongings covered by water until the tides would eventually recede. A journal that was found and some timestamps on pictures that he had taken had led investigators to believe that he died sometime on midday of June 26th. Before stepping away from the Tanaya Canyon area, there are some other interesting yet disturbing facts about the area that I should probably let you know about. Aside from experiencing more rockfall than any other part of the park, and being the most popular area for search and rescue operations, it has been home to some pretty rare and deadly things. In September of 2021, there was testing done on Tanaya Lake's water, and what it revealed was toxic algae blooms. Now, of course, visitors were warned not to enter or drink from Tanaya Lake, and to report any large blooms of algae that they may see. Now, they're particularly large, bright, and bubbly, 
They're strange looking, almost alien, and very colorful. They almost appear like a haze on the water surface. August of 2021, a month prior to the discovery of the toxic algae blooms, authorities had made a separate but just as tragic discovery in the park. They had found the bodies of Jonathan, Garish, Ellen Chung, and their one-year-old daughter, Miju. It was not immediately obvious how they had come to find their end. Apparently, the family weren't the only ones who died. The dog had also died alongside them. Now, there were no signs of foul play. The couple was dressed for the elements, and they were found a relatively short distance away from the trail. For several months, the toxic blooms in Tanaya Creek were thought to potentially be the cause of this family's death. However, in February of 2022, the FBI and the Mariposa County Sheriff's Office pulled data from the husband's cell phone. This allowed them to retrace the family's last known steps. They discovered several attempted phone calls and it seemed very desperate that never went through. There was also an unsent text message that was revealed. These texts said, can you help us? And on Savage Lundy Trail, back to Heights Cove Trail. We have no water and no heating. We are with the baby. Savage Lundy Trail is a 2.8 mile long trail near the south fork of the Merced River and Devil's Gulch, which has been known to be one of the most difficult trails in the area. The cell phone records and the discovery of the family's empty camelback, combined with the autopsy and toxicology reports, led the Mariposa County Police to think the family died of hypothermia and probable dehydration, while their eight-year-old dog Oski probably died of a heat-related issue. The sheriff's office said it's extremely rare for this to happen within the park and even in the Mariposa County area. It was the first confirmed death of hypothermia the area has had in well over 20 years. A lot of other things have happened in Mariposa County though. That's definitely true. But we will have to move on if we want to cover even a fraction of what Yosemite has to offer. If you wanted to meet what is thought to be the oldest ghost on the Sierra Nevada mountain range, you would likely make your way just east of Yosemite National Park to Grouse Lake. Thanks to the park's first ever park ranger, Gallen Clark, we actually have a record of his initial report from 1867. He documents hearing an unearthly wail while hiking near the lake. Seeming to come from the water itself, he described it as sounding like a puppy when lost. When Clark asked the local tribes about this sound, they warned him to stay away from that lake. And I will read you a direct quote from his writings as it's far more interesting than anything I could come up with. They replied that it was not a dog, that a long time ago a native boy had been drowned in the lake, and that every time anyone passed there he would always cry after them, and no one dare go into the lake for the boy would catch them by their legs and pull them down and they would be drowned. Gallon Clark, Park Ranger, Yosemite National Park, 1867. It is a chilling story nonetheless, but what makes it even more scarier is that Gallon Clark was not the last park ranger to encounter this himself or hear stories of it. Even as recently as 2022, this year, a park ranger has claimed to have had an encounter with the ominous Grouse Lake Ghost. They would rather remain anonymous, but this is their story. The park ranger was tasked with removing invasive plant species that were overtaking the local foliage. While deep in the woods, he was digging up the roots when he suddenly heard something strange. It was a loud cry deep in the woods in the distance. 
Naturally, being a park ranger, he headed in the direction of those cries at post-haste. The hike took him off of familiar paths and down into the deeper woods. After several minutes of running, the park ranger found themselves wandering into the Awanachi campground. Apparently, no one had an answer for him until a man came up. He approached them to tell the same story that was told to Gallen Clark himself. And then, the two men heard the cries again. All I can do is warn you and tell you you do what you think's best for you, said the man the park ranger was talking to. So, what did this park ranger do, you may ask? Well, he followed the cries to the lake, of course. However, there was something wrong with the cries now. Whatever was crying, it sounded like it was trying to hold back laughter. As it did this, apparently, the cries continued to get louder and louder. Luckily, the ranger used his smarts and decided not to hang around and meet this ghost of the Grouse Lake. And from what I can tell from my research, nobody else is stuck around to meet them either. They just aren't around to share their story, unfortunately. The Owani Hotel in Yosemite is one of the longest standing in the area. Opening its doors officially in 1927, it sits just a short distance away from Half Dome. This is one of Yosemite's deadlier hiking areas. There are two spirits that are said to occupy this hotel's hallways. In this first case, we have Mary Curry Treasurer who once operated this hotel. She lived on the sixth floor, which is now home to several guest rooms, including the Queen Suite, and has been seen frequently checking up on her guest on the sixth floor. The hotel has been historically known to host some of the world's most influential people, which brings us to our second legend surrounding the Owani, the parlor of the fourth floor suite, where John F. Kennedy once stayed. It's said that a rocking chair was provided for his comfort, and since his death, maids have witnessed this rocking chair moving all by itself. Even though now they have since removed this rocking chair, not very sure why, but maybe for museum purposes or something. Though we could wish all spirits were as friendly as the ones in the Owani Hotel. Unfortunately though, our next spirit is believed to be evil, and is likely to be one of the park's oldest legends. The Legend of Bohono, the evil spirit of Yosemite Falls. Rather boast-worthy and high-end beauty, Yosemite Falls actually consists of three different falls. Upper Yosemite Falls stands at an astonishing 1,430 feet and is one of the tallest in the entire world, while the Middle Cascades stand at 675 feet and the Lower Yosemite Falls is the lowest point at 320 feet. Bridal Veil Fall sits within the middle of the Cascades at 617 feet. It's a steep granite cliff that drops straight down. The natives believed this area was haunted by an evil spirit they called Pahono, who was known for luring unsuspecting victims to the edge of this cliff and having them fall to their death. Now, how would this spirit exactly coax people to jump to their death? Well, what is documented kind of varies. Some discuss hypnotic-like rainbows in the mist, voices calling out the prompt curiosity, or an apparition beckoning people to come closer. A strong gust of wind would fling them off the fall. The official legend passed on by the Awanichi states an old woman witnessed a young maiden get consumed by the falls. After looking down to the stream to the brink, she was attracted by the mist whirling around in the air. She was attracted and mesmerized by these very colored clouds. They moved down the stream, gazing into the mist, seemingly aloof. It was almost like they were hypnotized by this evil spirit. Nearer and nearer, they crept to the edge, 
until the whirling winds became too much and pushed them off the edge with a shriek. She would fall to her death to the rocks below. So, I know what you're asking. Swamp Dweller, is any of this true? Indeed, there actually have been a few recorded deaths that can be verified. People being blown over the fall or slipping and falling to the rocks below have been reported more than a few times. Coincidentally, it is known for the winds to be incredibly unpredictable at the top of the falls, and between 1987 and 1991, there were several recorded deaths. Most of these range from falling fatalities, suicides, and even drownings. On October 7, 1987, an NPS ranger recovered a body from Bridal Vale Falls. It was stuck at the bottom of the pond. Once it was removed, it was transported to the mortuary in Merced, California. The man was eventually identified, but what caused him to fall is still unknown. Some reports indicate that the victim had apparently climbed to the top of the falls, looked over the edge, then fell 2,000 feet to his unfortunate death, while others suggest he simply walked over the edge. In 1989, a man from Santa Barbara hiked with two friends to the top of Yosemite National Parks in hopes to camp there for the night. The next morning, the man suddenly went sliding into the water of, of the upper Yosemite Falls. He went over the edge and plunged 1,400 feet to his death. Witnesses said he didn't even react or even shout as he went over, seemingly accepting his fate. This next one is probably the most perplexing as it didn't actually involve a fall. It was the case of a Lebanese native living in Glendale, California, who was reported missing 4th of July weekend in 1990. Initially, he was thought to be lost outside the park somewhere, but his car was located near Sentinel Dome, which is located inside the park. His body was soon discovered in the Bridal Vale Falls drainage area near the rim of Yosemite Valley. He had apparently walked west from the area of the parking lot where they found his body. There was no fall involved, no signs of foul play, and though his death is believed to be that of natural causes, the actual cause itself is unknown. The following individuals have gone missing without a trace in these areas of Yosemite. These are the missing persons of Yosemite Falls. George Panka, a 30-year-old man from Hawthorne, California, disappeared on Friday, June 17, 2011, while hiking at Upper Yosemite Falls. He was visiting the park with others from his church. There were 80 people in his group in total, but apparently only about 20 of them went hiking in the Upper Falls. Once at the top, the smaller group of hikers split into even smaller groups and made their way down at their own pace. It's speculated that George may have been left behind around this time but his friends assumed he had made it back down to the Yosemite Valley floor, and they didn't report him missing until 9 p.m. that night. George was 5'10 and weighed about 240 pounds, and was last seen wearing sweatpants and a black t-shirt. He also had a blue cloth bag with him that had a limited supply of food and water. While the trail itself is maintained very well, there are steep drop-offs that people could fall off if they're a little too careless. A full-scale search and rescue operation began Saturday, in the early morning hours shortly after George was reported as missing. The weather conditions were mild, and overnight temperatures reached the upper 40s. This search included around 105 search and rescue workers. Helicopters, six search dogs, park personnel, and even people from several neighboring counties and organizations came out to help. 
On the 23rd, search conditions were switched to limited continuous search, meaning there would be no real further field searches going on in the future. But any tips or clues received by investigators would be followed up on. After almost one week of searching, no evidence was ever surfaced about where George went. Not even George's blue bag was found. Since no trace has ever been discovered, some people think he may have left on his own volition, but I'm not so sure about that. And the reason why I say that is because none of his bank accounts, credit cards, anything like that have been accessed since his disappearance. While it is possible that his possessions had fallen away from the trail, it's kind of unlikely that nobody saw or heard anything. Likewise, police have never released any evidence of foul play. If George was pulled from the trail against his will, no signs of a struggle were ever left behind. Though there are some certain speculations among some crowds of supernatural implications, with the ever-growing number of similar cases arising, especially isolated to one area, is it really surprising that these more crazy conspiracy theories would be coming up? Ruth Ann Rupert was 49 years old when she went missing, on August 14th, 2000. She was last seen around noon at Yosemite Medical Clinic in Curry Village after being forced to postpone her backpacking trip due to having a really bad eye infection, which happened to be in her only eye. Yeah, she had one eye. It is quite possible her impaired vision could have played a major role in her disappearance. Based on witness reports, it seemed like she planned on going on a day hike from Yosemite Falls to the Foresta area. In 2008, Ruth Ann's backpack was found in the Fireplace Creek drainage, which is an area consistent with her speculated route. But there was no sign of her and to this day her case remains unsolved and there are very little details to be found about it. Now these next three cases I'm going to cover are not connected, officially anyway, but they all did go missing in the same general location in the same month of July of 2021. Two of the bodies were later found and identified by authorities, but one remains unfound and completely unsolved. James Young Bloom was a 64-year-old professor from Stanislaus State and an experienced High Sierra backpacker. He was alone on this trip to Yosemite and planned to spend many days passing through the Grand Canyon of the Tuolumne River. He was last seen on July 20th and his body was recovered five days later in Lacante Falls on the Tuolumne River. 61-year-old Fred Zalakar was an endurance and mountain runner from Reno on July 17th, 2021, he was visiting Yosemite for just one day to climb Mount Clark. His goal was a car-to-car -car ascent using an off-trail route from Bunnell Point in Little Yosemite Valley. Ultimately, Fred's remains were discovered July 20th near the summit of Mount Clark. According to the sheriff's office, he died of multiple injuries to the head, chest, neck, abdomen, presumably from a fall. 72-year-old Richard Judd was the third man to go missing that week. He and a hiking partner were camping near Lower Merced Pass Lake. On Sunday, July 25th, 2021, they began hiking towards Lower Ottoway Lake, but somehow became separated along the way. Richard was last seen about 15 miles from the Happy Isle Trailhead Junction. A vehicle belonging to Judd or his partner was parked at the Trailhead parking lot, in specific the Quartz Mountain Trailhead parking lot in the Sierra National Forest, just outside of Yosemite. It's strange enough that three elderly men and met their fates all at roughly the same time, but even stranger relatively in the same area. It almost seems a little too much to be mere coincidence.
difference, doesn't it? We do know that near the falls today, there have been many safety railings installed to hopefully prevent more of this happening in the future. But despite such structures being set in place to try to prevent these types of things, unfortunately it's likely to continue happening in the future. Interestingly enough, campers in the surrounding areas have reported hearing strange sounds and seeing strange lights and all kinds of strange things coming from all directions around the falls at night. Whether those voices and noises belong to some sort of evil spirit or not is anyone's guess. It's definitely not the only place in Yosemite to be experiencing such uh, weird reports. Yosemite has seen its fair share of bizarre civilian reports. Including everything from encounters with cults, ghosts, Bigfoots, UFOs, and everything else under the sun. Some of which multiple people claim to have seen at the same time, with no relation to each other. To most park officials, disappearances are considered to be people who are dead after a certain amount of time. It's simply thought they made a wrong move, got caught in bad weather, etc. Possibly, these cases could be attributed to animal attacks. After all, Yosemite does have a very healthy bear population. But can a bear somehow sever a deer's head so cleanly that there's no blood or any splatter left over? I'm not so sure. Well, a ranger from the back country of Yosemite describes something of this nature. This one time, this ranger claims they found not one, not two, but three freshly severed deer heads while on his patrol. The ranger surveyed the area all around where he found the heads, before burning them and found no evidence of any bodies, blood, or anything of the sort. The eerie trail of deer heads would be reported by the ranger, but nobody has any idea who put them there or why. Unfortunately or fortunately, you won't find Bigfoot in the MPS ranger logs, but you will find some other interesting things. Definitely enough to keep that eternal what-if circling in the brain. This next part of the video is going to be a guest narration from one of my friends who personally went to the Yosemite National Park in 2017 and encountered something strange and unexplained, and only they can explain it best in their own words. My husband and I play music together, and in August 2017, we were on tour through Nevada and California. We decided after Reno that we'd drive through Yosemite to our next show in Fresno. We opted to take the arguably less scenic route, traveling down the California-Nevada border. By the time we made it to the 120 for Yosemite, it was dark. But since our van was our home and we didn't have to mess with the tent, we weren't that concerned. We figured we would just stop at the first campsite we saw along the route, park the van, and explore the next day. The further we go, the darker it seems to get. And for being one of the most populated national parks, it seems very dead. It's a little after 1 a.m., and while my husband continues to look for any sign of anything, I lean back and I start to doze off. While we slowly drive through these windy two-lane forest roads, I feel the car slow to a stop, and the low music that we're listening to gets cut. I'm still leaning back, and I'm about to ask what's going on, but just as I started to speak, Ryan did too. Amanda, Amanda, look, look, do you see that? I lean my seat up, and about 50 yards in front of us, partially lit by our headlights, is a figure standing on the side of the road, wearing all white. Shoulders square, 
head down, but facing the direction we're approaching. Ryan asks if I think it's a ghost, and I'm genuinely considering it a possibility. We haven't seen a town, a person, or even a car for hours. There's just no reason for a person to be out here, especially so close to the road. Ryan slowly releases his foot from the brakes, letting the van crawl forward towards the figure standing on the side of the road. When our headlights cast a full light onto the entity, it's about 25 yards in front of us when Ryan leans pressure back on the brakes. It's a man, barefoot, wearing a white button-up shirt and flowy taekwondo-esque looking pants. His stoicism is unbroken as we approached. We just stared at him and he stared back at us. Clean cut, shaggy brown hair, mid-twenties or thirties. He no longer resembled a ghost. The bottom cuffs of his pants were torn and dirty, and I thought that I could see a shadow behind him in the light. His hand wasn't outstretched as if he was hitchhiking, nor did he have any belongings with him. I don't know if he was even looking at us or just through us, like he was standing with his attention fixed, with or without a van shining its beams in his face, like his eyes, they didn't even squint when the light hit. Something felt so off. I remember saying my husband's name out loud in a tone that definitely conveyed concern. I know I wanted to speed up and get past this man. Without a word, Ryan hits the gas and we zip past him. We both had goosebumps the remainder of that drive, and I was wide awake for the rest of it too. We drove for a while without stopping, but eventually... We made ourselves turn into a campground, opting for a spot underneath what seemed to be the only streetlight in the entire place. If you're entering the park from the east, this was just before Tioga Pass, right before the east entrance of Yosemite. So what did the couple see? Personally, I have no idea, but this odd experience is a great place for us to unfortunately shift the tone of this video. We're gonna have to take the supernatural and paranormal things and put them aside for just a minute and recall an unsettling pattern of homicide, drug use, alleged cults, mental illness, missing persons, and more at Yosemite. But before we get into the entire criminal past of the park, because it goes deep, believe me, let's explore a more puzzling pattern of disappearances. These are cases where there simply is not enough evidence or data collected to be able to say what happened to these people but also where the victims are either visitors or employees of the Curry Village area. On the 31st of May, 1925, outdoor enthusiast Frank Coleman made the trip to Yosemite. This particular weekend, Frank rented a tent in Camp Curry. The other campers seemed to recall him as being friendly, active, and a great hiker. He was known to carry around his camera equipment and often hiked alone. It wasn't until Frank didn't return to work and was reported as a no-show that people started to worry about him. Members of the campground said they last saw Frank on the 11th, and the search didn't get underway until June 18th, exactly about one week after his last
last known sighting. Upon searching his tent, investigators found a camera case, his suitcase, and various equipment for his camera. But there were no additional signs of Frank to be seen, nothing to help them further their investigation, other than the fact that he likely had his camera on him. Search parties with bloodhounds ascended the entire area over the next couple of weeks but they still turned up empty-handed. The only trace ever found of Frank inside the park was the leftover belongings in his tent. To this day, no trace of Frank Coleman has ever been found. Dikran Najian was 20 years old when he checked into Camp Curry on July 24th of 1972. He's an American but spoke with a strong British accent. At the time, he was a medical student on vacation from Cambridge University and was planning on visiting Florida after Yosemite. He was last seen at the hotel registration desk when he asked for directions to Half Dome a granite dome at the eastern end of Yosemite Valley. It is presumed he became lost or injured somewhere in the wilderness, but his case remains unsolved and there are no known clues as to what may have happened to him. David Morrison was just 28 years old when he vanished from Yosemite National Park on the morning of May 25th, 1998. Witnesses last report seeing him near Little Yosemite Valley, heading toward the Half Dome. They also noted he seemed to only be carrying a day pack and didn't seem to be equipped for overnight camping at all. That night, snow fell in Little Yosemite and Half Dome. 75 searches, five dog teams, and a helicopter scoured that entire area up and down. There was just no trace of David anywhere. The following day, the search would be delayed because of bad weather and two of the climbers becoming stuck near the top of El Capitan. David's identity was later confirmed with the items he left behind in Curry Village. Kieran Burke was on a two-week holiday away from Dublin when he vanished from Yosemite National Park in the year 2000. His hotel was booked from the 4th through the 6th, but he was last seen in Curry Village on the 5th. He was wearing a leather jacket, which some have taken to mean he wasn't planning on going for a hike, or at least not a very long one. And his rental vehicle was left in the Curry Village parking lot for several days before it was recovered. And after that, no further leads have ever been discovered. To say there's a lot going on in Curry Village is genuinely an understatement. First, it should be stated that the area has gone by and is still known by several different names. Camp Curry, Curry Village, Half Dome Village, and finally back to Curry Village. The area has also received a lot of facelifts over the years. Not all of them for the better, and unfortunately, not all of them by choice. While researching various strange cases in the Yosemite area, a fair amount of them seem to mention curry. And unfortunately, not all publicity is good publicity, at least not for Curry Village's tourism. Also, as recently as 2012, Curry Village was the epicenter of a rare and deadly toxin outbreak known as Hantavirus. We won't get into the whole story, but essentially it involves a lot of rat droppings, enclosed spaces, and poor handling by Curry employees. The outbreak took over the park, halting business entirely as professionals tried to figure out what was happening. Visitors were initially left in the dark with little to no information being shared. In the end, three people died from the exposure and lack of treatment, while six more became grievously ill while also staying in the Curry campground. Most notoriously, serial killer Carrie Stainer was employed by a Curry company in Yosemite National Park and was living inside of the park when he was committing his crime spree, highlighting either a reckless pattern 
or unfortunate luck when hiring individuals. So let's move on to the monsters of Yosemite. Now we're going to move into cases covering the campgrounds of Yosemite, where the park's real monsters seem to rear their ugly heads. Think less mysterious and straight up wrong. The MPS logs paint a troubling picture. Patterns of sexual assault, drug abuse, drug dealing, and plenty of cases where employees and campers have overdosed on drugs themselves. Most of the time, these drugs are purchased within the park. It's impossible not to recognize these patterns, especially throughout the 80s and 90s. This park is home to some of America's most famous campgrounds, not just among tourists, but uh, criminals as well. It is here the Yosemite National Park Killer called his hunting ground. This is where he worked, lived, and committed his crimes, hence the name. It's been occupied by sadistic cult leader, Donald Gibson and his followers. And there are even reports of serial killers like Henry Lee Lucas, a man who claims to have taken over 3,000 lives, and Joseph D'Angelo, AKA the Golden State Killer, were also frequent visitors of Yosemite. Of course, these are just the ones we know about. And as you'll soon find out, several men went on killing for years in the area without ever being caught. Serial killer Carrie Stainer, better known as the Yosemite Park Killer, was 34 years old at the time of his arrest. He would eventually be charged for the murder of Joey Ruth Armstrong, who was only 26 years old. Joey was a naturalist working for and living in the Yosemite National Park. She was running educational programs for children and youth, and in July 1999, when she failed to appear for work, her co-workers knew something had to be wrong. Friends and family became worried and instantly called the police and a search began. When officers first arrived at Joey's cabin, there were obvious signs of a struggle. Her home looked as if it had been ransacked, like a bowl through a china shop. Various items belonging to Joey were scattered across the cabin, but among them was something that didn't belong to her. It was a red mechanic's hat. At the time Joey's disappearance was reported, investigators already had their hands full with another case, while the FBI was already involved in that case as well that was also inside the park. Due to the signatures of the crime scene being very similar, they believe Stainer was involved in all of these killings and kidnappings. Five months prior to finding Miss Armstrong's body, the NPS had discovered that three women had gone missing inside the park. Carol's son, 42, her daughter, Julie, who was 15, and Sylvina Peloso, who was 16 years old. She was also a foreign exchange student, staying with the Sun family for the summer. After a few days of extensive searching in the area, officials began to make arrests and interview people, none of which provided any leads to the whereabouts of the women. One of those fruitless arrests was that of Kerry Stainer. He worked at the Cedar Lodge as a handyman at the time. He had no criminal record, and he had only had one brief run-in with the law in 1997 with a marijuana charge. So unfortunately, Stainer would be released without issue. The local police and park rangers were unable to locate the three women, but they did discover Carol's wallet in Modesto, California. Something was clearly wrong here, but investigators had no leads. A full month into the search, investigators found Carol's vehicle. It was several miles away from where they were all camping. According to ABC News, boots, 
car keys, and a camera with pictures of all three women were found. It showed pictures of them inside Cedar Lodge and various other places they had visited on their trip. It was burned through and through. Two bodies were inside the open trunk, but there were three people missing, of course. This is when the FBI finally entered the investigation. The burns on the bodies were so severe that they could not initially identify the bodies very easily, but they did know that the remains were that of one adult female and one child female. Eventually, they would come to learn that those were the bodies of Carol and Sylvina, though unfortunately it would take several more weeks for Julie's son's body to be found, and it was found in the most chilling way possible. Two weeks after the bodies were initially discovered, the police received a letter from the killer. The letter contained a hand-drawn map and simply a note saying, We had fun with this one. The map led to a large body of water off Route 120, known as Don Pedro Reservoir. This was 40 miles away from Carol's burnt rental car, and this is unfortunately where they would find Julie. Her body was recovered from an embankment, and her throat was slit with such force that she was nearly decapitated. Fast forward five months to the case of Joey Armstrong. Her car was packed for a trip, and clear spin-out marks were left behind, showing where a different vehicle had turned around. Her body was found nearby the cabins, and medical examiners determined that she likely died the day before. One of the most disturbing facts about Joey Armstrong's murder, though, is the fact that she was decapitated. Decapitated. Authorities ended up locating her head some 27 feet away from her body. Though undoubtedly a bit more severe, the injuries to Julie's son's body were very similar to that of Joey Armstrong's. Authorities agreed they were dealing with a potential serial killer. They were now adding Julie's case to the Sund case that they had already begun investigating. The FBI did their best to keep these details under wraps and did not release any of this information. A witness was able to identify a vehicle make and model. It was the same type of vehicle owned by the handyman from the Julie Sund case. You got it, Carrie Stainer. Initially, his interview didn't wave any red flags to authorities, since he had no criminal record, but with this new lead, they re-interviewed him and checked his vehicle. Though no evidence was actually found, he did fit the profile to a T. He was a loner who flew under the radar, had access to the site, and possessed extensive knowledge of the area. Authorities acted quickly, arresting Carrie Stainer for a second time. They learned that Carrie would stalk these women, and then violently kill them after assaulting them for who knows how long. With Joey, he watched her while she loaded up her vehicle, back and forth from the cabin to the car, just long enough to know that she was indeed alone. Then, he forcibly removed her from the situation. After being immobilized with duct tape and thrown into his truck, she tried to jump out, head first, but unfortunately, she didn't get very far. On December 12, 2002, despite pleading not guilty by reason of insanity, Carrie Stainer was sentenced to death for the four murders and has been living the last 20 years on death row in San Quentin Correctional Institution. Henry Lee Lucas was beaten and abused as a child. His mother was a prostitute, and his father was a bitter alcoholic. In 1960, Henry claimed to have killed his very own mother with the same instrument she used to abuse him, a broom. He did serve time in prison for this, but apparently was released due to overcrowding. Henry told prison staff and authorities alike that 
he's not ready to be let out into the real world. He will probably kill again. He even foreshadowed that they would be sorry if they let him out. Obviously, though, this didn't change the overcrowding situation, and he was eventually released by 1970. Then, only a year later in 1971, Henry tried to kidnap three schoolgirls and was subsequently sentenced another five years in prison. During this time, he established a relationship with a family friend who began to write him while he was in prison. She was a single mother and they married upon his release in 1975, but Henry left only two years later after his stepdaughter accused him of sexual abuse. Lucas began moving between relatives' homes and one was eventually able to find him a fairly stable job in West Virginia where he would establish another relationship that would once again end in abuse allegations. This is when Henry moved to Jacksonville, Florida, where he befriended a man by the name of Otis Tooley. Henry would go on to kill his common-law wife. She was only 15 years old at the time. He stabbed her in the chest before dismembering her body into what he claims tiny little pieces. And this was just the beginning of Henry's killing campaign. Lucas was originally convicted of 11 murders and was given the death penalty, but his sentence was commuted to life in prison in 1998, and he died of congestive heart failure in 2001. I hear you, I hear you. Swamp Dweller, what does Henry Lucas have to do with Yosemite? Actually, quite a bit. In 1988, Henry was already serving a life sentence for his crimes that he committed in Texas. While incarcerated, Henry was actually a suspect in over 177 different cases. Two of these cases were actually very high-profile cases in the Mariposa County area. More specifically, Yosemite National Park. By this time, investigators were over seven years into the Stacey Harris investigation and four years into a case revolving around unidentified human remains, which were discovered in the park. The FBI, who was now involved in the Yosemite cases, liked Henry as a suspect. He seemed to fit the M.O. of some of these killings, especially from a confession provided by Texas Rangers that allegedly Henry Lee gave them. Henry apparently took credit for a murder that he described as being in the Yosemite National Park. The Lucas Task Force had officially been formed by Texas authorities, but they also had aid from law enforcement around the country. The intention was to flush out as many confessions and details as possible. In the Yosemite cases, Lucas claimed the victim was a female hitchhiker he picked up on Highway 41 between Fresno, California and Yosemite National Park. This was sometime in the early 1980s. However, it wasn't just this confession that got authorities interested in Henry, though. It was the fact that he had information about this murder that was never made public. Only the person who committed the crime would know these details quite frankly. Like when he had taken some investigators to an area within the park and told them he had buried some beer cans in the area. He said that he had put them under a log and sure enough when investigators went out to find these things they did indeed find these exact beer cans under this log in the area he told them it would be. However it was later determined that somehow Lucas was given the files to these cases that he was being accused of so he would have been predisposed to this information. So some have suggested that he may have adapted his confession to these cases to make himself a bit more infamous in the overall grand scheme of things, 
I mean, he was gonna die in prison regardless, so might as well take credit for more murders, right? I mean, make yourself more prolific, more famous in a way. A serious allegation against the Lucas task force is that they actually allowed him to read these files and brush up on the information surrounding them, which resulted in convincingly detailed confessions to most of these crimes, some of them that don't even make sense that he would be a part of. So, this makes it very hard in determining what is actually fact and what is actually fiction when it comes to how much Henry Lee Lucas actually did in Yosemite National Park. Some of you may remember a few weeks back my episode that I uploaded on the Stacey Harris story. Now, I'm only going to cover the broad details of this case because I do have a longer video on that. If you want to check it out, you can find it in the description. But I still want to cover it to make sure those of you who don't know about it get these details and also because it is a rather pinnacle story in the Yosemite area. Stacy was only 14 years old when her and her father and six other people went on a nice hiking trip through the back country of Yosemite. They were horseback riding along the High Sierra Loop in the Tuolumne Meadows. There are five camping sites along that 49-mile loop, each spread about a day's hike apart. Stacy's group reached the last site in the loop on July 17, 1981. This particular camp has nine tents and is capable of accommodating around 34 people. There is no electricity or running water in this camp after arriving at the camp, Stacy changed into her flip-flops and left the cabin with her small camera. She was just intending to explore the area and snap a few quick pics. She did ask her father to accompany her to a short hike to a lake that was about a mile away, but unfortunately he declined, which would be a decision I'm sure he would regret for the rest of his life. On her hike, Stacy ran into 77-year-old Gerald Stewart, who accompanied her for about 20 to 30 minutes of her hike, before he decided to take a break and then return alone. Other witnesses had not really observed them walking together, but some did say they saw Gerald resting on a boulder while Stacy continued on ahead. When she failed to return to the camp, a 12-day search ensued. But nothing was ever found, unless you look at some other speculative sources that claim a camera lens was found, but I cannot find any official documentation that states that, to be clear. There was no blood, there was no clothing, no shoes, nothing at all was left behind of Stacy Harris. Not even her cigarettes. Yes, at 14 years old, she was smoking, but hey, give the kid a break. If one thing is for sure, we know that smoking cigarettes is not what killed her. It is believed that something did, however, but that something has never been found in either of Stacey Harris's body. Henry Lucas was cleared as a suspect in the Stacey Harris case. However, investigators simply wanted to know if Henry knew anything at all about other cases related to Yosemite specifically to another case, one that has tormented Yosemite investigators for years on end. They desperately were trying to identify a 1983 Jane Doe and determine how she died. Henry Lee Lucas died before he could be convicted of several crimes that he was thought to be a part of. Over the years of his incarceration, he alleged to be a part of 3,000 murders, even going as far as providing details to specific crimes and the locations. The FBI and Yosemite officials were considering Henry for a lot of cases within the park, but most importantly, they were trying to link him to the death of Patricia Patty Hicks Dahlstrom, 
a woman who went missing in the early 1980s. And for several decades, it wasn't just Patty's case that remained a mystery, but her identity too. On June 28, 1983, a severed arm would be discovered. It was extremely decomposed. Estimations dated the death to be at least in 1982 sometime, but no clear identification could be made. At best, it was possible that these body parts belonged to a petite woman. There was just no way to be sure. Then in 1988, near this same location, a skull was found. This also belonged to an adult female, and likely belonged to somebody who was in their late teens or early 20s. But DNA wouldn't be able to confirm this theory into 2009. Finally, in April of 2021, she was finally identified with the assistance of Parabon Nanolabs, but her family requested the information not be released publicly. This information would not be publicly revealed until it was featured on a Hulu series, Wild Crime, in October. Patty's family declined to show up on the show and give any interviews, which is understandable. Henry Lee Lucas was never convicted of the crime, even though he did confess to being the perpetrator. However, many believed that Patty was actually murdered by someone named Donald Gibson, a cult leader and dangerous predator known to stalk Yosemite in the Merced area. This Yosemite deep dive continues to get darker and darker. The last time Patty spoke with her family was in September of 1982, just after moving to Merced, California. She had actually joined a religious following founded by Donald Gibson. Her friends would later go on to report that her personality would change significantly after this. When Patty reunited with her best friend Ruth Lavrakis just before 1982, Ruth learned that her friend was probably involved with what was known as a cult. Patty and Ruth discussed meditation, but mainly she talked about Donald Gibson and their elusive church in the woods, San Anda Apostolic Church. This church was often referred to as the cult by local Merced residents. They held low opinions of Gibson and those who held his company. Some claimed the women were chosen on attractiveness, while the men were recruited with the promises of sex and drugs. There were also reports of arranged marriages and sexual rituals. You know, all the fun culty stuff you see on Netflix. When Patty had finally met Donald, he had been living in and around Yosemite for damn near a decade at that point. Shortly before she went missing, he was convicted of four different accounts of assaulting minors sexually. But don't you dare go anywhere because his crimes actually get much worse than that. Not only was he abusing minors, he was drugging his victims with LSD and all kinds of other stuff before assault, saying things like they would become a part of the deity, and by doing so they would relive all of their sins. Though found guilty and set for incarceration, it is believed that many of his followers remained loyal to him, probably out of a sense of fear and manipulation. Considering he jumped bail to avoid sentencing, they were well justified for their paranoia. This guy was known to kill, and he would likely do it again. Patty decided to leave the area upon finding out that he was set free and her roommate believed she planned to take public transportation to the very park she was found in. Many have speculate and fear that he may still occupy that same area, continuing to prey on younger people in secrecy. As it stands currently, no one knows where Donald went and nobody has ever seen him again. 
Is it likely he probably killed this person over Henry Lee Lucas? I believe so entirely, but I guess we'll never truly know unless he's caught. Donald Gibson remains a fugitive at large, and his his whereabouts are probably as good a guess as anyone's. He definitely does not deserve the freedom he's gotten. Alive or dead, he didn't deserve any free time after what was discovered. Even more unsettling, unlike Henry Lee Lucas, Stacy Aris and Donald Gibson would have been in the park at the exact same time. Her case actually took place at the peak of Donald Gibson's involvement with Yosemite National Park. Gibson was never thoroughly investigated as a suspect for Stacy Aris's disappearance before he went on the run either. So there is a good chance that he could be a match, who knows? Again, that's just speculation though. In the instance of Patty and many others, it's unknown exactly what happened to her or why, but her case highlights a few things. Yosemite is full of predators, whether it be people, animals, or something else. There is always something that is there lurking to prey on the weak and the vulnerable, all in some of the most beautiful, unsuspecting places. It is worth mentioning the infamous Golden State Killer, Joseph James D'Angelo. He was known to prowl the Mariposa County area, stalking his victims. Though he hasn't been tied to any crime specifically tied to Yosemite, D'Angelo was a former police officer, so it is believed he understood how to cover up his crimes a bit better than most. He actually was damn near close to going free entirely without ever being caught if it wasn't for a commercial genealogy thing that caught him up. This was a company very similar to things like 23andMe and Ancestry.com. Apparently, he would be linked to crimes through a distant relative's DNA. On April 24th, 2020, he was arrested at his home in Citrus Heights, which is a suburb of Sacramento. In June, only a handful of months later, D'Angelo pled guilty to 13 murders, 13 R-word related allegations, and admitted to committing dozens more murders and crimes that he was not being convicted of. All in a time span between 1976 and 1986. Ten years he committed so much violence. Many of these crimes being beyond the statute of limitations. He was found guilty of crimes in ten counties across California. More than three of these cases were on the western border of Yosemite, which is damn near way too close for comfort. On August 21st, 2020, D'Angelo was sentenced to life without possibility of parole. It's predators like these, the Henry Lee Lucases and Carrie Stainers of the world, that not only make your skin crawl and give you goosebumps, but force you to wonder, is it possible that some of these cases are related to unsolved murders? Could it be that not all serial killers in this area have been apprehended? Like the Golden State Killer, who lived a long, free life after going on a murder spree for over a decade. He's an example of the fact that some killers just don't get caught, and some of them go free for the rest of their days. So it's entirely possible that many monsters like this exist, and I would go out on a limb and put a lot of money down on a bet to say that there are still several people doing this today. I don't at all buy into the theory that serial killers can't exist in today's world. 
It's entirely possible that these people or some unidentified killers are responsible for the missing and disappearances of people even to this day. Of course, no one can be sure, but the following cases remain unsolved. Michael Fissery was an experienced hiker and backpacker. He grew up in Southern California. He was known to have a photographic memory and worked for the post office after graduating from university. Aside from hiking, he also enjoyed surfing and he cycled to work every single day. So he was in excellent shape, especially for a 51-year-old. On Wednesday, June 15th, 2005, he visited the north side of Hetch Hetchy Reservoir for a solo hike. This was an area he has visited several times before and was very familiar with. The trail he planned to take that day was a lesser used one comparatively to the popular trails of Yosemite. Ultimately though, this trail would circle back around the reservoir. On his way up Till Till Mountain, Michael deviated to the north and began walking up the Pacific Crest Trail. Unfortunately, this would be the last time anybody would ever see or hear from him. The only known medical condition Michael had was a condition that made swallowing his food slightly more difficult. He had to chew for an extra amount of time to make sure he didn't choke. His family did not report him as missing until sometime around four days after he had gone missing. On the 21st, Michael's car was located in the parking lot of the hiking area, and this is where the official search began. Michael was a tough guy. On a previous trip to Yellowstone, he had actually broken his ankle and crawled all the way back to civilization. He was a badass to say the least. His family, understandably, considered that this may be what was happening now in Yosemite, but when his back pack was the only items of his to be discovered, they began to get worried and fear something much worse may have gone down. The backpack was found pretty quickly after the search began, just off the trail, near Tiltill Mountain. Knowing that he would never leave something so important behind, his family and friends began to get incredibly worried that the situation is much more dire than initially thought. Michael was known to use an empty milk jug to collect water, and it was not found in his bag. Considering there was a river just below the slope that his backpack was found, it's speculated that he may have gone down to fill his water jug, but at this point it's unlikely that we will ever know. Did he simply fall into the river, slip, or something like that? Your guess is as good as mine. In all of the years since his disappearance, no other clues have been gathered. Various psychics claim he's alive, and the family has periodically conducted various searches over the area. But there have been no new leads. At the time of his case, the MPS budget for search and rescue was just under $5 million. And Yosemite is responsible for using more than a quarter of that budget every single year. Walter Reinhard was a 66-year-old retired Marine from Oro. Arizona. He served as a member of the elite force reconnaissance and spent two combat tours in Vietnam. Despite surviving so much time in a literal war zone, in November of 2002, Walther entered the Yosemite woods to never be seen again. His car was found seemingly abandoned at the White Wolf Mountain trailhead west of the Tuolumne Meadows. The search covered a 150 mile radius of the White Wolf trailhead. This included helicopters, blood hounds, boats, and crews of park employees. But with all of this, they were unsuccessful in locating Walther. His sons, Kevin and Walter, soon joined the hunt 
and continued long after the search officially ended. They knew the chances of his survival were slim to none, but they just were hoping for a miracle. Walther remained in peak physical condition despite his age. He exercised every single day and hiked up to 24 miles a week. If anyone at that age could survive that time in the wilderness, Kevin and Walter believed it was their father. A park employee who was closing down the lodge in the White Wolf area at 9 a.m. is believed to be the last person to have a sighting of Walther, and the last charge on his credit card was at a gas station about 15 miles away. On September 17, 2016, 74-year-old Peter Jackson texted his son to confirm that he was on his way to Yosemite. But that text message would be the last time anybody in his family would ever hear from him. Though Peter was an elderly man, he was in excellent physical condition and didn't have any known medical concerns. This seems to be some sort of theme among these recent cases we've covered. Peter went missing on September 18th, and his son reported him missing on the 26th. His vehicle was found in White Wolf Campground Site Number 58, but his camping registration showed he was planning on leaving the 21st. Other campers haven't seen Peter at his campsite in the past four days or more. It is believed at some time Peter went on a hike, but it's entirely unknown what direction he headed, when he left, or when he planned on returning. Ground and air searches were conducted, with dogs, volunteers, the whole nine yards, but as you probably guessed, nothing was found. On October 2nd, the search was placed on limited continuous search mode and has remained there ever since. In the summer of 2020, 50-year-old Sandra Sandy Johnson Hughes vanished in Madera County, leaving behind her vehicle and belongings, but not a single trace of where she could have gone. She was an experienced outdoors enthusiast taking advantage of the isolation the pandemic caused in most of the national parks across the country and decided to go camping in the Sierra Nevada National Forest. On Sunday, July 5th, hikers called park officials to report stolen property at a remote campsite. This was near Johnson Meadows in the Sierra National Forest, which is just outside Yosemite if you're not aware. Park officials were then led to an abandoned campsite, where authorities noted the entire clearing looked to be in disarray. Someone's belongings had been strewn about, including the tent. All their bags were emptied out onto the ground. It was a total and utter mess. It looked like a tornado ripped through the scene. They found enough personal belongings to identify the site as belonging to Sandra Johnson Hughes. But even after an extensive search of the area, there was not a single sign of Sandra anywhere. Upon contacting her family, they were immediately concerned about her well-being, stating that Sandra always kept her area and equipment nice and tidy. Plus, she would never abandon her things, just like most others wouldn't. It was all completely out of character for Sandra. Investigators also found a crashed car and discarded things like sleeping bags just north of Yosemite. Though there are no roads that connect Chiquito Creek to Johnson Meadows, where the camp was found, there are actually plenty of hiking trails that do indeed connect these two areas, putting these two areas really close and incredibly accessible to each other. Sandra's family put up flyers in nearby towns and businesses of that region. It was the height of summer, and this area is known to be bubbling with campers and hikers at that time. They figured it was only a matter of time before someone somehow would recognize Sandra on those posters in the area. 
Sure enough, after about a week or two, two hikers immediately noticed Sandra's picture. They reported that they recognized her and had seen her at least on the July 4th weekend, somewhere near the Chiquito Pass trailhead. According to them, she had a bruise on her face, and she was barefoot. The hikers allegedly asked if she was okay and needed any help. Sandra allegedly assured them that she was fine, and they continued on their way. According to Yosemite Park official reports, Sandra was left stranded on the side of the road after her vehicle broke down. When offered assistance from motorists or other people passing by, she would refuse help. Authorities said they will assume that she is still alive until evidence suggests otherwise. Recently, the Madera County Sheriff's Police Department did indeed confirm that the missing person's investigation for her is still open. However, the circumstances of her disappearance are entirely unknown still. One of the most recent hikers to go missing in the park is 31-year-old Joel Thomason. Came from a small town inside the San Joaquin Valley in Stanislaus County, just a mere two-hour ride away from Yosemite. Joel was an experienced backpacker and hiker. He was also an experienced angler with much experience in the Hetch Hetchy area. That's exactly where he was planning on hiking this time. He wanted to go to the northwestern part of the park. He wanted to hike to Lake Eleanor and back. The lake is a reservoir located in the northwestern region, but it's in a more backcountry area of Yosemite itself. Joel began his hike on Monday, September 6th, and he was due back from Hetch Hetchy on September 9th. The last time anybody had seen Joel was the first day he set out on his hike. Apparently, he was sighted by a park ranger by a rather steep area of the O'Shagnessy Dam, but wasn't reported missing until September 11th, 2021, about two days after his intended return. For several months, investigators would search along with his family and friends. The park was searched high and low for any sign of Joel, but as you guessed, there was no sign of him within the park. What's actually pretty interesting is how much stuff Joel actually had on him. Things that search parties and investigators never ended up recovering. He had a yellow and gray backpack, a green sleeping bag, a blue-gray hammock, tan zip-off pants, and a bright red inflatable kayak. Colors like red and yellow aren't very common in this area, so they should have been relatively easy to find. Not to mention, had Joel been attacked by an animal, he would have likely shed most of his possessions to escape the attack. Finally, in December of 2021, the extensive search came to a close with zero trace of Thomason, and unfortunately was presumed dead by officials and his family. The sad truth really is, is because there is no proof of his death, and because he didn't leave on his own accord, he is still concerned considered a missing person, which prevents his wife and children from receiving his death benefits. The family's GoFundMe page explains, In the state of California, it can take five years to get a death certificate for a missing person, which means his wife, Amanda, cannot collect on the things normally available to help bridge the gap such as Joel's life insurance, social security, etc. In January of 2022, there were mentions on a public outdoor enthusiast forum named High Sierra Topics of gathering fellow anglers and backpackers to search for Joel once more. They planned to take the same route Joel had taken several months prior, but they would also be searching Laurel Lake, Frog Lake, and the eastern shores of Eleanor Lake. It's unclear if this search ever actually took place though. Even if it did, 
It's unlikely that they had furnished any real results since I haven't seen anything posted about it. But that doesn't mean nothing was found, I guess. To this day, Joel remains one of the many missing from Yosemite National Park. When it comes to bears, magic forces, paranormal entities, or even just people, ancient curses, or anything in between, who do you fear more? Do these monsters make Tanaya's curse seem mild? Or are they somehow a part of that very curse? Is it all connected or just happenstance? It's hard to come up with a definitive answer, even after weeks of putting together this video, researching, writing, I still have no idea. Because when it comes to the legends, the theories if you will, and even the many realities of Yosemite, they're as vast and ever-winding as the forest itself. If nothing else, we can count Yosemite as one of the most populated, mysterious, and downright deadly parks on the planet. That's not exactly the badge we're looking for, I guess. But hey, we'll take it. With the exception of Tanaya Canyon, as it seems Chief Tanaya may argue its reputation, it is fitting that the curse is indeed doing its job as intended. Well guys, that's the last one for this deep dive. It's nearly an hour and 20 minutes already, and I don't want to drag you guys along any deeper into the many, many mysteries and twisting tales of the Yosemite National Park. So what do you guys think? Is there a connection between any of these cases? Is there more than one explanation behind all of these strange disappearances and murders? I definitely want to hear what you think in the comments down below. Be sure to comment and let me know your thoughts about what the heck is going on in Yosemite. Whether you think it's Bigfoot, Alien, a drug cartel, a team of serial killers, I'd love to know. Anyways, thank you so much for supporting the swamp the way you do and sticking with me to the end of this long deep dive. If you enjoyed this video, be sure to like. It helps get pushed in the algorithm by YouTube. Be sure to share this with some friends and subscribe if you're new as it helps me grow. And I'll see you all soon with another creepy episode. Oh yeah, I just recently started a Patreon. If you want ad-free versions and early access to these videos, you can now find a link in the description to get access to those.